welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm really, really excited for this interview. I think we've waited for it for a long time, but this is a really special interview. I am talking to um, one of the former wives of Warren Jeffs, and uh, of course, she's not known as that anymore. Her name is Brielle Decker. Brielle, can you say hello? Hi. Now, Brielle, you're uh, coming to us from Hurricane Utah right now. Is that right? Um, yes. Yeah. So Brielle has probably one of the most fascinating stories I have ever heard in my entire life. And that says a lot because I hear a lot of great, amazing stories. And I'm going to let her tell that. But Brielle, can you kind of give us some background really quick? Out of all, how many wives does Warren Jeffs have? 79. 79. And do you happen to know what number you were in that whole lineup? I was 65. 65. Okay. And how many women that have been married to Warren Jeffs have left the FLDS? That uh, unknown because most of them don't communicate. They have been brainwashed so bad and told that they need to go away and they can't talk to anybody that would know them or each other. So they're like in hiding. Uh-huh. Even, you know, they're, they're not accepted back into the church and they know they never will be, but they... They believe that if they go against that council, then they will reap more punishments in heaven or something. So my understanding was that there were at least two that were out talking to outsiders, you and one other. Is that right? Is that true? Yes. And I know another one that has surfaced recently, but she's still quite quiet. She's still silent, but she'll talk to like us, but she won't like talk to everybody yet. It's too soon. Interesting. Okay. I want to I want to just dive into your story because it's so fascinating. So if if you're comfortable, let's let's get into that and um then we can talk more broadly about these issues. But start set it up for me. Talk about your early childhood. Where were you born? Uh, tell me about your family. I was born in Sandy, Utah, where at that time many FLDS lived and I did go to Alta Academy school as a child. And for those who don't know, Alta Academy is the school that got famous because Warren Jeffs ended up being the principal. Was he the principal when you were there? Yes. I was there for six years. And then and then um, the, the school and the Jeffs moved down to Colorado City. And I stayed in, in Sandy for two years, two and a half years, and did homeschool for seventh and eighth grade. And... In eighth grade, I taught my niece preschool also. And then in ninth grade, the first of the year, I taught seventh and eighth grade and preschool. And I had never done seventh and eighth grade. I mean, except for I taught myself. So tell me what kind of things were you teaching? We were teaching the curriculum that was um, required by the church. And they actually, when they left, when they took the school down to Colorado City, they actually set up a whole program at the school building before they left. And everybody gathered there and volunteered that was of age and had time. And they were they actually helped compile the books and print them and give them to the families in the Salt Lake area. Okay. So and it's all edited and old books because the new versions of books were too modern. They had too many television statements and things that we didn't believe in. So there were old, old books that had been edited. 
So talk to me about like, what did you know about science in the world and in the United States? I know it's a broad question, but tell me some of the things that maybe you were taught that now that you think were kind of nutty. Well, science, we didn't do very much of it all. We kind of went in and did the achievement test, and that's about the best education I got on in science, except for just like conversations at home and just things like, how did this work? You know, oh, it kind of works like this, you know, but it wasn't ever very much science. Were you taught that the world was, I mean, I'm assuming you weren't taught about evolution. You weren't taught about any of that stuff. Right, for sure. That was more history, I thought, but I don't know. Maybe I still don't know very much, but history was all priesthood history. It was all history of the church and very little other very little other history. So I don't know hardly any countries still to this day. I, I've got my GED now, but I don't, I still need to do a lot of college classes and things, but I'm not that far yet. So I've heard, I've talked to some people who really thought like the United States was the entire world, that there was nothing that, you know, bigger than that. And Warren Jeffs was like the president of the United States. Did you have similar misconceptions? No, my family was a little more educational than that. They, talked more amongst themselves and I knew that I knew about Christopher Columbus and a few other things you know that he came and to America and settled so I knew a little more than that okay so talk to me about your family and how many siblings did you have how many mothers did you have that sort of thing I had 14 okay I'm number I'm one of the 14 so I had 13 sisters and brothers and I had two mothers um one of the mothers didn't join the family until I was about 14. And my family was pretty stable. I mean, considering a lot of things. My father was very, very loving and still is. He gave me a very good gift of love. So I had more, I was more grounded because he had so much love and it, I could see it every day. You know, even though he wasn't around, I could, I knew he was working for us. I knew. And my mother was very loving, too. She had a lot of love, but there was some things that I didn't really get along with my mother as well as my father. And my brothers and sisters, many of them are, they're really, really go-getters. They, they want to do, like, whatever they feel is the best thing to do. And they, they get involved in lots of projects. <laughs> and I'm still that way. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, you definitely are. You've not stayed uh, still since I've known you. So that's awesome. Um, talk to me about what's it like growing up as a child in the FLDS? The thing that I learned a lot in the FLDS was that uh, my parents had a different version. They interpreted the scriptures differently. And even my grandparents, we went to their Sunday schools. They interpreted the scriptures different than what I, when I went into Warren Jeff's family, what they were telling me the scriptures meant. And I liked my parents' description better. And it was more soft. It was more like compatible with everything. And and so as a child, I, I didn't know there was like so big of differences everywhere. So I just always went off my parents and grandparents and what their interpretations were. And I wasn't really, I didn't feel at risk. I didn't feel... I mean, there was restrictions and things, but it was all through love. My parents introduced us to it through love. You know, like when they announced that television wasn't going to be 
acceptable anymore. We didn't get rid of it for like two years after that. And then we, we slowly got rid of it and said only news, you know, and then this. But my father always was more laid back. He didn't really, he didn't really act to me that the church was more important than me. So talk to me about what's a happy memory you have as a child growing up. I have a lot of happy memories, but most of them are about my father. And one of them for sure is when I was a little girl, I didn't get to see my father very much. I knew he was working. I could call him and talk to him during the day. But he would go to work before I woke up, and he would get up after I got went to bed. I mean, he'd, he'd go to work. I said that backwards. I'd go to work before I woke up and get home after I went to bed. But I would wake up in the night, and this is my happy memory, is I would hear him snoring, and I thought that was so comforting. I knew he was home. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, okay, so you grew up mostly in Salt Lake. When did you come down to the creek? When I was 16, I moved down. It was during that year when I was, oh, it was actually, oh, I was in Salt Lake for three and a half years before I moved down to the, after, three and a half years after the Jeffs moved. Because the, the first year I taught seventh grade in preschool, the next year I taught, I joined all the whole, two. there was two main schools that joined together in Salt Lake. And I was an assistant to seventh and seventh grade boys. My mother was the teacher and we had a, like a whole class of like 12 for one quarter. And then my brother was asked to work night shift and to teach during the day. And so my mother was his assistant and I went to first grade. And I was an assistant to first grade. And then um, we got word that we were moving down to the creek. And this was after I was 16. I had my driver's license. The very day I turned 16, I got my driver's license. I had already passed the written and driver's test before I turned 16. And father gave me a set of keys on my birthday to all of his cars. So then at, at 16, I, I stayed in Salt Lake quite long. Until until everybody was basically gone out of the valley. My father was in charge of moving New Era, which was at that time called Western Precision. And he was the main person making sure everything got down safe. So he was there to the very last. And I was asked to stay with my sister and help her pay off her sewing machine with her, her house cleaning jobs. So I stayed up there to the very last, and my sis brothers and sisters were already in school, enrolled in the Jeffs Academy before I ever made it down to the creek. And my father called me one day and said, you are going to go to Jeffs Academy when you get down there. So I was in high school when I arrived. So how did you feel about the move? Um, I kind of felt sad about it because I loved my, my father's house. In Sandy, he built it, and that's all I ever knew. And it was really sad to leave all those memories behind. It felt like I was just leaving them behind, and we were kind of commanded to. We were told that we were taught that um, home is where priesthood is, and it, and you should never even want to see your house again. You should never even have those desires to even remember those things, because you need to advance with the prophet. So home is not where family is. Home is where priesthood is. Yeah. And I felt really sad about that. I didn't want to do that very bad, but 
you know, I didn't really have a choice at that time. I was only 16 and, you know, I, I just thought, well, my parents, I definitely don't want to leave my parents and my family right now. <laughs> I don't think that was wise. You know, family always meant a lot to me. So talk to me about when, I mean, is it, does it start to go bad when you move down or is it, what is it like when you get there? What's when I got married. So lead us up to that. What, how did that even happen? Yeah, I got married because I had a sister. My sister Colleen was married to Rulin Jess first, and that's Warren's father. And then she married Warren after. And so I was kind of always, she was married five years before me, but I was always one of the people that was always trying so hard to be good. I just wanted to be good all my whole life. I just wanted to do the right thing. I didn't really, it didn't really matter what people thought of me. I just wanted to do the right thing. And in those situations, the right thing was, of course, the trainings and everything, the brainwashing, but I didn't. I didn't really think about it because I didn't feel any risk. I didn't see the red flags because I didn't see, you know, I didn't, it wasn't risk. Why would I, you know, I didn't know that there was any reason to not believe it because I, there wasn't like a ton of bad things, you know, in my father's house. There was bad things, but I didn't feel at risk. So I didn't, I didn't see those things. Anyway, I, I was always known as like a goody goody, you know, like the tattletale, the person that just always thought that there was a way to solve everything and that if you just talk to the leaders, then it would work out. But my father knew better. He didn't really always go to the leaders. So I didn't really get like a ton of corrections or anything because my father just either handled it or didn't handle it. And there wasn't any, I didn't ever jump over him or anything. So. I didn't see what the leaders were actually doing because my father just handled our life circumstances. And then um, my sister got was married five years first, but because of my reputation and because she married into that family, I was teased like so much that I was going to go into that family. And I had like some sisters and brothers that didn't have, share the same opinions of wanting to, um, to, they were kind of jealous, it seemed like. Now that I look back on it, they were. I had some brothers and sisters that just didn't have my best interest at heart, like two of them, but most of them did. But like two of them were just like really, they kind of planned people's, they do, they still do, but they kind of plan people's, um, it's sad, but... You know, I, I say it because they've hurt more people than just me. They they plan people to to not succeed. They they want them to, you know, not have the best chances. So, yeah, and we I think this is normal. We talked about this on the podcast before. In a patriarchal society that is heavy heavily patriarchal, women are pitted against women and trying to tear each other down. It's just how the system works, right? Oh, I. I see. But these are just sisters and brothers. You know, they weren't really like in polygamy and everything, but it yeah. was just because I think they were jealous. You know, they, they saw that I wanted to do good so much. I had such a motivation and desire and they didn't have that. And they just wanted to know how that felt, you know, but they didn't really know how to go about it in a way that was 
you know, helpful. They just thought, well, if maybe we tear her down, maybe she'll break or something, you know? Well, when you were teased about coming into his family, how did that make you feel? Like, were were you kind of excited and flattered by it? Or is that something scared. you didn't? Sorry? I was really scared because of the way they teased me about it. They would tell me, we would never want that. We would never do that. We We don't want to do that. But you are. You're going to. We don't want it because he doesn't like sandals and he doesn't like this and he doesn't, you know, he, they would go all the negative. And then they would tease me about it and say, but you're going to do it because you want to do what's right. So it was a negative way of teasing me. And so I was scared. So how did it end up actually happening? Well, when I turned 18, well, my father wouldn't let me get married before I turned 18. He, um, he, at that time, he had a lot of say in because we had to. Tr- they had to recommend their daughters to the leaders and tell them that they were ready. But my father had a really hard time doing that with most of his children because he he just got attached to his children. So with me, I I had already witnessed so many of my sisters and brothers that had to wait till they were eighteen. So I didn't really, I didn't even think about anything else, you know. I just knew that that's what he wanted. I was like, I don't want to make him sad. So I'm not really going to ask him or anything, you know, where in that religion, there was a lot of people that a lot, my best friend got married at 16. You know, it wasn't abnormal, but I, now I see a whole different picture. I know what's wrong. I know more, but at that time I was really sheltered and very like my father just protected us. We didn't, we didn't have to like go beyond that. And I knew that he was going to wait till I was 18. So I just waited till I was 18. And then he, he turned me in without telling me he was going to turn me in. When you say turn you in, what does that entail? Wrote a letter recommending that I was ready to get married. And the day that he wrote that letter was the day he got the call. And he came into the kitchen. I was cooking and my back was to him. But my mother was in there and she just gasped and said, no, you know, because she, I, I don't know if she knew that he wrote that letter or if she had seen so many of her children go through that, that she could see all over his face that he was coming in to say goodbye, basically, you know, to take me away. And so she just screamed no. And I turned around and. He said, let's go. We need to go on a drive. So I didn't get to wear a wedding dress. My mother didn't get to come. She wasn't invited because Warren Jeff was on the run. He was running from the law and he didn't he didn't want anybody, hardly anybody there. He let my father come because he had the priesthood, but he didn't let my mother come. So we just drove up to the real and Jeff's house. And then we had somebody escort us to another house in the community that was at that time his brother's house, Leroy. Jess and we went in and sat down but my father told me on the way up there that he had written that letter that morning and he was crying and everything we got there and um uh Warren Jess started to ask me the questions the drills that he had taught me in the trainings and I knew all the answers I had had I had I had had uh, even though I had listened to all the tapes and was always wanted to be loyal it's not normal to know every single answer right off. But I knew him because my sister had gone through all the trainings and picked out the sentences 
that she wanted me to remember and played them to me. So I was kind of set up. But I went in there and he started to question me all these things and I knew the exact answers and I just answered him how he taught me how to answer. And so, then by the time I was done, he said, oh, I knew you knew what the Lord wanted. So I want to back up with all of that. Let's let's back up. I have a few questions. So first of all, I'm actually surprised to hear your mom's reaction that she didn't want this because I would think that with Warren Jeffs' status and who his family was, wouldn't it be seen as an honor to be married to the prophet? Well, she didn't know I was going into the prophet's family for sure. She just knew that that's what she thought I was going to do. She didn't want me to leave the family. I was like the main support in the family. I was everybody's like, you know, I did I did so many things for everybody that, you know, and not even my other mother came to me and said, you are my best friend. I feel like I'm losing my best friend. But I had been told by my sisters and brothers, you're going to go into that family. And it's like going to somebody's funeral. Because we're never going to see you again. Our other sister, we never get to see. She's gone all the time. And she doesn't have the, she's taught that, you know, it's better to stay in the home and not complain and all this stuff. And we're not going to hear from you again. You're going to leave and you're going to be gone. So how? what was your dad's reaction? Did he feel honored or um, was he sad? What was he feeling? I didn't know at that time what he felt. But nowadays, he's told me, I never wanted you to do that. He said, I just, I never wanted anything like that. But yeah, I think he kind of knew that it was going to. And even all of Warren Jeff's family knew. They said they all knew before it ever happened. They knew when I was like 14 years old that that was going to happen. Why, why do you think they knew that? Because of the way that he acted, the way Warren Jeff's acted. So he had his eye on you for a while. That's what I suspect because um, of everybody else telling me. You know, I was kind of dumb and naive. I didn't I didn't really go into problems. You know, I just always thought positive. I always thought, well, there's got to be a way. You know, the Lord is here. You know, he'll help us through this. So I didn't really focus on the bad. What were you thinking? Like when you found out it was Warren Jeffs, were you? Was it kind of like everything that you had been teased about is finally like the other shoe is dropping? Were you excited? Were you nervous? What were you, what was going through your mind in that drive? The first thing I thought of, which is really weird to most people, is that I never got like sex education. And so I just thought, well, this is how naive I was at that time. And I remember thinking and everything is I thought, well, maybe, well, my other sister never had any children, so maybe I don't need to know, maybe I don't, maybe I'll never have any kids, you know, I don't really care, you know, I'm just not going to have any kids. That's so, what I thought. So you were worried about... The, not of, knowing what I needed to know. So you knew enough to know that marriage entailed sex of some sort, but you knew that you didn't know anything about it. Right. So I never, mother never came to me. And gave me sex education. And they don't have, like, internet. They don't have, like... I mean, they... I didn't have access to internet. I didn't have books to read. I didn't have any way of finding out. But I do know that my sister came to me and asked me if I did have that training. And I said no. And she says, Mother came to me three times. She'll come to you. So I don't know if my sister went and told my mom that I already had the education. Or if 
So like it was a setup like she'd always done before. Or if she, um, or if my mom didn't do it for some other reason, maybe she forgot me. I don't know what it was for sure. But I didn't, I didn't want to like, I didn't feel like I could go and talk to her and really, because I felt like she would be sad that she forgot me. So I just held it in. I just thought, well, this is going to work out because I don't really need to know. So Warren Jeffs was in hiding at this point. Where was he at when you drive to him? Where was he hiding? It was Leroy Jeffs' house at the time. It's a house in the community in Colorado, in Hilldale, Utah. So did he have an office set up there? No, it was just his brother's house. So you, for the interview, you didn't go to his traditional office. You went to his brother's house. Uh, was it in the living room? What what room yeah. was it in? Living room. And during this interview, are there other people present as witnesses? There was his brother Isaac, my father, Leroy, his brother Leroy, and me. That was all that was there. And, you know, Warren. What kind of questions are they asking you? The questions that he went over were like the things he had taught, like, um, when you are asked if you want to be, if you have any impressions or revelations about who you're supposed to, who you're supposed to marry, who you're supposed to do, you need to, you need to talk. If you don't act on what, what you're told, then the Lord will punish you and you will be judged and all this stuff about you need to do what the Lord has already directed in your heart to do and that kind of stuff. So when I he started asking me these questions, he asked the very questions that he had he had taught. So I'm sitting there going, "What am I supposed to do?" You know, I don't want to say anything, <laughs> but I know that there's punishments if I don't. What would the punishments be? He just said that God will you'll lose out on the blessings, and I knew that there was people that never got married. So I didn't really want to be like an old person in the community and have this story going around that I didn't get married because I rejected my opportunity. And, you know, I didn't really want that for myself. I wanted to experience something, you know, even if it wasn't all the best. I just wanted, I didn't want to be, you know, like the old person that lost my opportunity. So you go in, you answer the questions, you get it all right. What happens next? I reject, I mean, I kind of reject because of my naiveness. I just, when, after he sent my father out and then he tried to like, you know, the other people were out and he he tried to like get close to me and have me come over and sit on his lap and all this stuff. And I was like, ah, you know, I kind of resisted him. I really resisted him really bad because I, I just figured I didn't really know what I was doing. So I just thought, well, I'll just. I'll just resist, you know? And so he started questioning me, like, is your, are you close to your mother? And are you, you know, all this stuff about, you know, am I, why am I resisting him? You know, but I didn't realize why he was asking me. I just answered his questions. No, I'm not close to my mother, you know? And so he finally called my father back in and sent me back home. He sent me home that night. I went back home to my father's house for a week. And... I well, I guess it was time to get close to my mother or something, but I didn't take it. I I just decided that I didn't need to know. I just I'd be okay. 
So I'm trying to understand this. Um, I've heard about this dynamic before. I've actually heard stories where Warren Jeffs would do a marriage, um, like perform a marriage for someone, have a room next door, expect people to consummate the marriage and then leave. So because you're not even showing any signs of that, was your father uh, upset with you? Was he punished? What happened with that dynamic? Sorry? At that time, he wasn't punished. But he he didn't care. He was just glad to have me back home. He doesn't really show a lot of emotion most of the time. Yeah, it's kind of like, please don't throw me back to the briar patch. <laughs> he thinks he's like sending you home, which is actually what you wanted. What What is the connection with being close to your mom? I, I don't quite understand that. Because I obviously didn't have my education. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So it's not that he's creepy or a much older man who used to be your principal. It's that your mom didn't teach you enough. Well, I just, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of like I decided that I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even go into it as if I was a wife. I didn't even expect what a wife would expect because I didn't even know what a wife expects. So I went in there as like just to learn how to get to heaven, how to he was gonna teach me how to come in the presence of God. I wasn't gonna I I wasn't even expecting the wife stuff. So did you get married in that office? Was the ceremony performed? Yeah, they had a priesthood ceremony and then we didn't consummate the marriage. I never consummated the marriage. And this is what I love. You have this great story of resistance which we'll talk about, but tell me what the ceremony entails. What is it? What do you do in the marriage ceremony? You hold hands and they recite some words that say in the presence of God and angels. Then you accept this person or and you say, I do. And and then you kiss. And then um, that was it. We didn't even have a ring. Was it strange kissing the man that had been your principal? I didn't even think about it. I just thought, well... I seen my parents kiss, you know, so I just kissed. And I didn't really think much about it. I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know why, but I, I didn't really. I was kind of numb at that point, you know, like scared, numb type. I was like, mind was like way off, way off, like thinking, where did everybody go? What's gonna happen next? You know, am I gonna be okay? You know. Yeah, yeah. The next morning, he actually asked us to go to the the work project meeting. And when I got there, he walked down. It was the last time he ever showed up in a work project meeting in Colorado City. And let's just let's just tell people what that is. So, work projects. You had a Saturday work project. It was sort of the church's donation weekly, to help weekly thing to assign people where to go to help. It was a meeting, a gathering. But For Warren a service Jeff- project, right? Yeah, service project. He walked down the aisles and handed out corrections to like eight men. And I was sitting in the audience with my father and I just remember thinking, I'm never going to survive this. Oh, man. That's a really bad impression to give somebody right when they barely get married. And corrections are uh, punishments, basically, saying you've done something wrong, you need to be corrected, you need to be sent away, right? 
Yeah, he sent them away, the fathers that I'd known for years. And now he's telling them that they, they lost their families. They can't be together. Uh, and that's why I was just like, this is so bad. Because he, he's, he's so mean, you know, I thought, how, how could, you know, why would he tell me to come to this meeting to see this? That's a really negative thing to see right when you get married. And I mean, perhaps like if I could guess, I would say he was showing you who had power and what happens if you disobey, right? I guess I, I never really, all I knew about him is he was mean. He was in his family. He is not nice. He's very, very mean. All of his, his interactions, he corrects like every time. So you didn't look at him and think, oh, I'm the luckiest girl alive. I get to be sealed to the prophets. You didn't, you didn't see it like that. Not really. I, I thought, I thought, well, I'm kind of lucky because, uh, of my position, like everybody else in the community is not going to treat me as bad. I didn't really think about him because I, I, I could sense right off. I have really strong intuition and I could sense that he was correct the first day. I was like, this is weird because that's not what the training say. The training say you're supposed to have persuasion through love. And this is not anything close to that. So what happens after this? So I, after the week that I stayed with my father, and my sister Colleen came and got me and we went to Texas. Somebody drove us all the way to Texas. I was gone for five years. I didn't see my parents for five years. And what does Colleen tell you? Does she say, welcome to the family, or here's some things you should know? What is that conversation like? Well, during the week that I stayed at my father's house, one day she drove up, ran in the house and said, is, is, and my name was Lynette. So, is Lynette here? And everybody just said, yeah. And she's like, okay. And she ran outside and got in the car. She didn't even come and say hi to me. But that was because of the way Warren was acting. She said he took her out aside and then he didn't say anything. And he just went back in. So she decided that I must have got married. She wondered that in her mind. So she came and stopped by when I was at home. She decided maybe I hadn't. And then she went back to her house. And like three days later, he told her. And then she called me and talked. We talked on the phone a few times. She was happy about it, but I could tell that she was a little bit more reserved because she knew what I was going into and knew the dynamics of the family way better than I did. And she knew it wasn't all fun. So she didn't really act like real, real excited, but she didn't act like not welcoming. So you drive to Texas to the YFC, the Yearning for Zion Ranch. Yeah. Tell me what that's like, because I assume that you had heard what everybody else had heard, which is it was this kind of mystical place. People knew some stuff about it, but they they didn't know a lot about it. So what did you know about the YFC Ranch before you arrived? Well, they had a major training on it in the car and a little bit before. But it was all about um, the stories about this place. And one of the stories I really remember like stuck in my mind was so sad to me because he talked about how Warren Jeffs took his children off of the land in his father's house in, in Hilldale. He actually told me how the Lord revealed that he needed to rescue his children because the out, you know, the, the people were after his children that weren't in the church. 
and he needed to rescue him and bring him to lands of security. So he he got gathered all his children, told them this, told the mothers, but he said the the saddest thing was that not one of the mothers was prepared enough to go. And not one of the biological mothers. So he broke up families, his own he families. Broke up every single one of his kids from their biological birth that so day. Who did they go to? They they went to caretakers. They went to other mothers. That, that were married to Warren? They were married to Warren, but they weren't their birth mothers. They're the ones that actually had them. So, so I, I questioned right there. That was a red flag to me. I was going through red flags since the day that I joined his family. Because it was, like I said, so different than my my parents' interpretations. So it was like red flags. And, he, and when he said that, I was like, how could that even be possible? That not one mother from, you know, that had those children could, qual- you know, that doesn't even sound logical. And it was no. a signal to you right there that even Warren's, Jeff's wives could be punished severely if they didn't fall in line. Yeah, I knew that. I knew that always. But I just thought that that was not really from God. I just questioned God right there. You know, I was like, how could that, how could God say that not one person that doesn't sound right out of, you know, like, you know, 79, you know, there wasn't 79 that had children, but. Out of all those mothers, not one of them qualified, you know, that had children. It it just didn't make any sense to me. So what happens when you get to the ranch? Walk us through that. When I got to the ranch, then um, there was no houses built at that time. It was all trailers. And it was very muddy, very... um, in construction. I was one of the first people that went to Texas. They did have Colorado already set up. R1, they called it. It's a different compound. They had already done that one, but I never went to that one. I just went to R23, which is what they called Refuge 23 is what Texas was called, Yearning for Zion Ranch. They called it R23. I mean, R23 was South Dakota. Called it R17. Yeah, that's right. R, R1, R17, R20. So Texas was R17. I went there and just, he, Warren Jess was there and he had his family all around. He started telling, giving me instructions. And he told me so many things to do. He had me on every single thing. He had me being a school, uh, school assistant. He had me being in the kitchen for an hour a day. He had me sewing for an hour a day. He had me out in the yard for an hour a day. I mean, I was literally running from one job to the other, like the entire day long to make it, to even get something done before the hour was over. And I think it was because I wanted to study the scriptures. I was studying so much that it scared him. Why would that scare him? Why would that be a threat to him? Because he didn't want me to know more than him you know he didn't want me to have that much time to study now and what we're going to talk about is your study and your knowledge actually is the thing that saves you and becomes your resistance but for outsiders listening they might not understand that because they might assume that the more 
you study your scriptures, the more faithful you are, the more rewarded that would be. But that's not the way that it works. So kind of set up the dynamics for us of Warren Jess's family, what he expects from his wives, how the households run, stuff like that. Okay, well, he has like his, his, his wives rotate a lot. They are assigned, usually they only have one assignment. I, that's why it was so unique for me to have all the assignments. Because usually they only have one assignment that they do the entire day long. Like they teach school for the whole day and then correct after. Or they, and then they go to meals and they have um, classes they have to be to. And, or else they're on children, you know, like young children that are not in school yet. And they watch them all day long. Or else they're on sewing and they sew all day long. Or they're on cooking and they're only there during the cooking hours, but that's pretty much all day after cleanup and that big of a family. So they have, and then they're cleaning and they have, um, let's see, yard work. They're either on, yeah, they just did one assignment normally. They rotate. So he'll tell them an assignment. They're on it for a few months. And then he'll tell them another assignment that they, they rotate around. So they get experience in everything. But with me, I was on everything at the beginning. So I was, I was crammed with everything. Anyway, the scriptures, the reason why the scriptures were red flags to me, I felt like that I could have power with scriptures because I could, I could say, God said this. God wrote this in this book, and you verified that God, you already gave us the information that God said this. So if God said this, then how come you're saying this? You have to match up with God or it doesn't work. So I just want to point out how bold this is. This is the thing that struck me about meeting you for the first time. If you don't mind, like, you're kind of quiet and shy and reserved. But to hear how you resisted this. So I just want to point this out to listeners. You've mentioned this. You managed to be married to Warren for how many years? It was like, it was from 18 to 26. So she, for several years, almost 10 years, seven years, whatever that is, <laughs> math is hard. You managed to resist having sex with Warren Jeffs. And you do it through all of these really subversive, ingenious ways. And I think it's super bold of you. You spend time arguing theology with Warren Jeff. So talk about those moments when he calls you in and you can tell that he's trying to consummate the marriage. Well, I, I just resisted it. Right? I just, I would, I would just like, I didn't like fight him or anything. I just acted naive. I just, you know, most people when they first meet me, they, they always, almost everybody even to this day tells me that I could be run over. I could, all this stuff, but when they get to know me is when they say, oh, well, she actually has a strong opinion, and she sticks to it. But at first, so I, they, that's what he did. He just thought I was you know, naive, and he even asked me one time, he's like, do you even think about sex? You know, and I was like, what are you talking about, you know? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't really delve into it. He's like, you need to at least think about it, you know? He gave me counsel like that, and I started picking up on his clues that I needed to study into it more because he was he was getting too like asking too many personal things that I was starting to raise red flags in that area so what I did is I left to a house in hiding he got up one day and he said if you need more time to prepare then come and talk to me and I will send you to a place 
that is a good place for you to prepare. That's not on this land, but you can, it's just a house out in, you know, just hiding from the rest, from everybody. And you just sit in that house and pray and prepare. So I went up there and I said, okay, I want to go to one of those houses. I need to. And he's like, okay, you know, I, I, I agree with you, you know. So he sent me away. And that's where I started talking to him. I wrote in letters and I started asking him the questions. So what kind but of questions were you asking? I didn't do it. I told him things like why I, I, I told him I didn't know anything, why I didn't know anything. I kind of explained why. Um, I asked him why, if he would ever teach me, you know, because I could tell he wanted to. But I never asked him in front of him because if I was in the room, he would probably would have just gone right into it. I didn't really want that. I wanted to be ready for it. So I told him things like, I don't want any kids until I'm ready. And your kids are so advanced and they're advancing so fast every day. I don't know if I'm ever going to be ready. And I'd send that letter. And then the next letter I'd write, I'd say, well, maybe if I just stay here and study solid for a long time, all the scriptures, all the studying that I want to do and ignore everything else. All the assignments you give me and everything, I'm just going to ignore it because I'm going to stay here and study. And that's what I want to do. Then maybe I'll be prepared to have kids. But maybe I can earn your, you know, earn it. And and so, so you're using his tools against him. Right. And is he getting frustrated at all? <laughs> yeah. He called me like, he called me. People would tell me even to this day, they say he didn't read all his letters. Maybe that's true when he was in prison but I personally know he called me like every single week sometimes twice when I was living in the house he would answer my questions directly now I have to say like you're number 65 it's not like he doesn't have other things to do I know but I he could tell he didn't have control over me so he was doing everything he knew to get control over me but it wasn't working you know, I, I, I learned things. I learned that he, cause he'd call me and he'd say, you, he'd yell at me. I'd already sent the other letter and he'd start yelling at me and telling me that I don't get to decide if I have children. He decides. I don't get to decide that. That's none of my business. And, and then he would hang up. And when he and then, yells at you, what, how do you respond? I already knew I sent the other letter that said that I would stay there and study. So are you being sweet to him when he's yelling? You're not responding. I listen to him, and then I didn't. I didn't say anything. And then, like three days later, he'd call me back and say, "I'm sorry, I did that. I got your other letter." And I was like, "You have revelation from God. There's, there's no revelation here. If, if you had revelation from God, he would have told you I already sent the other letter." So I figured out he went by letter. She didn't go by revelation. Oh, this is one of my favorite stories. I just love how you do this. Okay, so he's getting more frustrated. And is this when you're in Nevada? You're in the, he sent, the place that he sent you to was in Nevada? Right. Oh, so explain, explain that because you have told me some stories about that experience that are like mind boggling. They don't make sense to me. So talk, talk to me about some of the weird things that's going on in the home. Well, um, I, in the home, they had like, they had snugs there and things. They were working every day and they brought in work, which is unusual for a home like that. Usually a house in hiding, they don't have work. They only have like prayer, read the scriptures. They tell everybody different things than they were telling that house because I was living it. 
they literally brought in work for us to do because they didn't want me to have an excuse to study. Because I told them I wasn't going to pray. I said, I'm not going to pray. I don't want to be going back before I'm ready. I just want you to know that I, I'm not going to be preparing until I feel like preparing. So he couldn't really take me back to the, where he was because I wasn't preparing. And that, that land was only supposed to be for the elite, the elect. So how could he take this really rebellious person there who openly rebels? The whole family will question him. So he just decided not to, you know, he he tried a lot of things, but I didn't go back. And that's why he got caught before I ever went back to Texas. That's so, why I never consummated the marriage, because he got caught. So are the women in the home shaming you? Are they shaming you, saying you're naughty, you need to shape up? Well, some of them were. Some of them were very observant and actually turned out to be the group of people that harassed me later using some of the knowledge they learned there. I didn't know the people good enough. I didn't realize that there was so many things that were going to come out of this. But I was just like talking to all of them and making friends with them and chatting. But some of them were way more advanced than me. So they were taking notes and they were literally like holding me accountable for every little thing. But the thing is, is that they never won because I proved through the harassment and everything, that even when they questioned me, what I had told them was really the truth. And I wasn't, I'd always tried my whole life, so they couldn't catch me on anything. So talk to me, I mean, I want to talk about some of the, the strange things, like tell us about the code. Yeah, the code happened a lot later, but it oh, was... Okay, then I'm jumping ahead. Okay, so um, yeah. you're in the home... I want to start talking about some of those, I hate to say it, like dark, the dark, when the dark stuff starts happening. Can you get into that? Well, part of the dark was because of what happened to me as a child when I was under my mother's care. So I had to tell him all that stuff because of, you know, the, the he was getting into the confession letters and all that stuff. So I I didn't realize how bad it was. You know, when I was, I knew it was bad, but I didn't realize how exploded it was going to be. So I didn't do anything bad, but I, I was a victim. You know, I, I had some circumstances. I don't really like to go into like who it was and everything that happened because it could affect other people in my life now. And they've asked me to be more cautious about it. But I did have some circumstances where I, um, was a victim and I stopped it at like seven years old. I mean, I literally stopped the whole thing by tattling and by making the person mad because I told them, you know, I went into it again and just made them mad so that they would leave us alone, you know? And you, you tell, you have to confess all this to Warren. And so how does he respond? Well, he didn't really say anything about it, but it was the other people in the house. I, I don't remember like saying a whole lot about it, but I do know that they like, they, they knew too much later on in my life. They knew so much. I didn't know if I had said it because I didn't remember like saying it because I was just being friendly to him. 
or if they learned it from my sisters and brothers or the other people that were growing up with me. But they like questioned me on every little thing and they would they have their own justice system. So they would like watch your actions. They'd ask you something and watch you. And however you react, they would say that's what you did, even when you were a child, because that's your character. So you they didn't treat you as a victim. They treated you as a perpetrator. Well, yeah, they, they thought that I had, they wanted to see if I was a perpetrator or a victim. I said I was a victim. That doesn't always mean you're a victim. So they would watch me and see if I really was a victim or if I was a victim. So now, do you want to do you want right. to talk about the drugs or no? I don't care about the drugs. Okay, is this they where do- they start to medicate you? Well, that was harassment. So after the the harassment went for three years, solid harassment, solid testing every single. I had to answer them every single hour. Why are they I harassing you? Why are they testing you? What's that about? Well, the first off, they started teaching me because they claimed Warren Jeff told them to. He handpicked somebody special that needed to learn code. And they wanted me to become one of them. They wanted me to be a teacher and help them with the children. They first tested me and saw if I was qualified. And then I was qualified. So they wanted me to be join them. And I said, no, I'm not going to because that's taking away the kids' freedom because you're teaching them a different language and they won't be able to communicate with the outside world if they choose to leave. So why would you force them to learn that at a young age? Why would you force a child to learn something that they may not be able to recover from? So now are we talking about the code? This is when they start teaching you the secret code. So explain what that is to people because when you first told me, like I couldn't, my brain could not understand what you were saying. Like it didn't make any rational sense to me at all. So Kind of do your best to explain this crazy thing to people who have never heard anything about it. So code is a is a different language using the English language. And usually what you said, Betty, about people not understanding it, usually people don't understand it until they hear it a few times. But there are ways, I've learned better ways to communicate, and it does help. But it it is, there are signs that I, I'll go into like how you know that it's really true first. And that is, because like Warren Jeff is in prison, and every day the the Texas prison watches everything he does, and reads all of his letters, and they never can pinpoint if he is telling the people to do these crimes. But why can't they tell? It's because he talks in code. He talks in a different language, and the people in the church know the language because they were harassed like I was, and the ones at the top. And they interpret what he says and act it out. So there's signs that show that what I'm saying is true. And it has been proved in court. There's been other people, even in Warren's family, that are out, that have verified it. But they won't talk about it because it's so, it's threat, it has threats in it. it has, it's, it's very, very, like, secretive. They don't want, it's just hard. It's so hard that they are scared. But and code is, me- code is taught to, it's supposed to be for the elite, right? The faithful language of Zion. So basically what it, what they do is the adults, um, they handpick certain adults that they think can handle code. And they test their psyche. They test if they can comprehend it. And if they can, 
then they they keep them. They try to keep them in. And if they can't, they get sent away on repentance missions or sent away for good if they think that they're just too dumb to understand. So give us an example. The example, one of the examples you taught me was about shoes. Right. So it's easier to understand if you, if you first go into like why, you know, like how they explained it. See, like the first thing I told you was how I learned that he went by letters instead of revelation. So this is how I passed the sight test was because when they came to me with these corrections that I didn't do, I knew he went by letters instead of revelation. So I started watching the people around me. I was like, how did I get this correction that I stole this thing and I never did it? Somebody is lying to Warren Jeffs about me. So I started watching everybody around me and I'd read what they said. They would talk in symbols and code and they would say, we're going to lie about you and we're going to say that you, you, you did this thing. You know, you, they just make up little things at first. And I, I just, I thought, oh, I'm just making this up. Yeah, right. How could I understand what the symbols are? You know, because they would bump me. They do obvious things, but it just seems funny when you first like think about it. You're like, ah, maybe I just made that up. So I just would deny it all. And then I would get the very correction that they told me they were going to lie about. So I realized that they were telling me what they were going to do. They were, they were harassing me. They would follow me everywhere. They'd sit by me at every training. They would sit, go into every workplace I was at. They were assigned to the same jobs I was assigned to. Every time I was rotated, they were there. The same group of people. They would stay in the same room with me, but we didn't stay, you know, we had bunk beds. And so everything was monitored. I had no privacy. I had nothing. Even our conversations with Warren Jess, they would sit in the room and listen because they needed to make sure that we weren't saying something the prison wouldn't accept. So we had no privacy at all. And I, when you're getting, when are your hand picked like that? But, so I passed the sight test. I started to react to him. I was like, okay, you're going to lie about me. You're going to say I committed adultery. I'm not going to let you do that because that's going to be way too hard of a punishment. So I'm going to write to him and tell him I didn't do that and prove to him that I didn't do that. Even though I don't have any reason to. I just know that you told me that you're going to lie and I don't want the correction. So I would counteract it. And then I wouldn't get the correction. I wouldn't get any reply. Usually when you just make up something and write something, he would say, why did you say that? You know, but he wouldn't even say that. He knew why I wrote that because I was starting to understand code. So after I learned, so like, and now I can give you the example that you wanted about like the fireplace or whatever. I, I do say fireplace a lot because it's, it's more advanced code, but it is like fire means something, place means something, fireplace means something. But in code, fireplace is like a firing place where a gun would shoot you at that place. Okay, so so let oh. me break this down um, for people. So the idea is to teach people and teach children so they can't be really helped by the rescuers. So you're taught this code. So eventually, you know, Warren Jess can communicate with the group. It makes no sense to outsiders. So things like fireplace, 
he's changing the meanings of the word, but not really. So it's a firing place where you'll be shot by a gun. And tell tell the shoe story too, because that one was really interesting. Well, that that was when they were harassing me, and they would sit, you know, next to me, or they'd walk down the hall. They would literally like throw a shoe at you or do something obvious. Like what I was saying, and they would do obvious things to talk to me. One of the things was like throw something at you, like a shoe. And in my mind, at first I thought, why would you throw that at me? You know, it was like, it meant, you know, they would just look at me in the eyes and just throw a shoe at me. I mean, who does that? I mean, they're adults, you know, they're not like kids or anything. They're not, we didn't have an argument. We didn't have any reason for somebody to throw the shoe at me and then just walk away and not say sorry or anything. So I'd go over there and I'd say, why did you throw that shoe at me? And they would say, we don't know what you're talking about. We have, I have no idea what you even mean. I don't even know what you're trying to say. I didn't throw a shoe at you. They would blatantly lie if you talk regular like we talk. And they would walk away and do something back to you. Like they would either throw the shoe back at you and walk away or else. And they would take the very exact shoe and and do it again. Or else they would kick you or they would do something that was obvious. It wasn't like you could avoid it. When you're being followed everywhere and have these little things like a little pinch or a little, you know, it's really obvious. It's, it's there. They trigger you. They really, really want to get into your mind, especially if you understand them. So like some people, they test their sight. And I've heard of many people that have been sent away for reasons. They don't know why they got corrected. And to this day, they don't know why they got sent away, why they got accused, but they tested them first. They went through the same thing they did to me and taught, accused them of little things first. And then when they didn't pass the test, they decided they weren't going to ever be qualified to for their position. They wanted them to be. They weren't useful anymore. So they just sent them away. They got them corrected for something really bad and sent them away on a lie. And this part is so crazy making to me because it's like ultimate gaslighting. It's making you question your own sanity. I can't imagine being children learning this. Like it's just such a confusing, destabilizing way to sort of also take power from you while teaching you this. It's it's crazy. So talk about, I mean, and also Brielle, it sounds terribly lonely. Like you're really fending for yourself. You don't have friends and confidants. Is that how it felt? Yes extremely because everybody that they accepted that they decided had high enough IQ or whatever to comprehend it they are all part of this group and there's no options after I was trained I was like why did you handpick me I didn't want to be handpicked I just want to be like one of these other normal people over here just leave me alone I understand what you're saying I reject the offer and I, I just want to be over here they're like that's not an option you have no options in that area because we can't allow people to just leave our mission. It's too big of a risk for us. We can't allow this knowledge out. We don't want, you know, this, it's just not an option. Your options are either you're going to die. You're going to be so crazy. We're going to harass you so bad and make you answer so much. That you are going to be in a psych ward. You're going to be so crazy. Or you're going to leave the church. Or you're going to join us. There's no other options for you. That's what they told me. 
so train. So what does this do to you as you're learning code? Talk about the mental effects and how they decide to to deal with that. Well, the first step was to teach me code and then ask me if I'd join them to teach children. And um, they target children because children can't, don't have the options to leave. They, they're kind of more confident that they'll have them for sure. And the children don't always have, like, when you take a really little child, they're not even going to remember how to, they don't have the regular way in their mind. They don't have the normal way of communicating in their mind. So eventually, all they're going to know is code. And they won't know how to communicate when they leave. So I, I, um, I rejected. And the next step they took me to was telling me that I was worthy of blood atonement, that I had um, done something in my life. That's why I was talking about my childhood and the dark stuff in my childhood was because they started bringing up all those past things and saying, we need to make sure that you are telling us the truth, that you are really a victim and that you aren't just guilty of blood atonement and guilty of something that would cause you to need to, that we can justly take you out. You know, we can't justly say that because you rejected code that you're now worthy of blood atonement. You have to have a sin that causes you to be worthy of blood atonement. So they started bringing up all these things because I didn't accept their mission. Okay, so and how do you respond to that? I fought with them. I, that's when the scriptures came in. I literally brought up scripture on everything. I'd say, well, you can kill me, but it's, it's according to the scripture right here. It's not just before God. You will account for it in heaven. Or we'll find something else. And so they would, they just brought me through like so much of that. Like for four months, I lived in a house in hiding and it was constant. I had to answer them and every little thing, like if I didn't go to a training, because the trainings are intense, you're answering so much during a training. You move, you answer, because it that's how they work. They sit next to you, they bump you, right during a certain sentence. They're talking to you, that's how they talk. So I didn't want to go to the trainings, and I would just say, I would just stay out. I would just stay upstairs so that I could at least breathe, you know, and move. I, I, I didn't want to go numb and freeze through the whole thing. And they would come to me after and say, you know it's a requirement to be at the trainings, and you committed a great crime by not allowing us to sit next to you when you were supposed to be there and we you know we we're required to be there and now we're going to go and say that you you know killed somebody or something i might now are these women or men or both i started out with women but at this house in the first beginning stage when they taught me code it was all women all sister wives and then um the second stage they started bringing in the caretakers because I was in a house in hiding, they had a caretaker that wasn't really knowledgeable about the case, and they were teaching him at the same time. Now, explain caretakers, because Warren has now, does, is this after he's annulled all the marriages? Or before? This is before. So, caretakers were men that were basically chaperones for his wives, right? Right. Yeah, they just... They just watched the house, made sure nobody escaped, made sure, you know, that we were all in check. Anyway, they were teaching this caretaker code at the same, you know, he was learning what I had learned before. And he was, he caught on to it. He did catch on to it. And he sat there and monitored. 
So he'd come to me and he'd say, you didn't come to the training. These guys are asking me if they can use the telephone. I have the telephone. He had the telephone. And I want to know why I shouldn't let him use it. Because if they use it, they're going to say that you did, you know, you killed somebody or something and they're going to get you corrected. So why shouldn't I let them do that? It was really actually better than a lot of caretakers. And I said, well, usually if they told the truth of what I really did, like I didn't go to the training, which is, it is a, it is a bad thing, but you know, I avoided a lot of other things that could have gone on during the training. I said, if they told the truth about what it was that I actually did, then I would get a little punishment. It wouldn't be the same punishment. It would be a little thing. It wouldn't be a big thing. And so he would go back to them and say, were you going to really, you know, like say something that big that would cause such a big punishment? And they would say, yeah, we're working you. And he's like, I'm not letting you use the phone then. You know, you have to tell the truth. So he put them in check. And it did, it did help a lot because we wanted to be just before God, you know. And so the whole time we argued for four months and I won. They didn't have anything to pin me on because I, um, I just, I, I can't say I'm perfect, but I know that they, they couldn't get me. If they had to tell the truth, they couldn't like find anything that I was doing bad enough. I wasn't killing anybody. I wasn't committing adultery. I wasn't doing any of that stuff. So they couldn't find something big enough to pin me on. So they moved me away. They moved me to a, a South Dakota. And this caretaker was so advanced in code. And he was in Texas when I first got there. So he was talking to all the people that had harassed me. And so he came back with all the knowledge about my case. And then he immediately started to my case and immediately started harassing me. Well, the raid happened when I was in South Dakota. And the raid on Texas. This is why about when they started medicating me because they were they were trying to get everybody around me to believe that I was crazy. They didn't want the rest of the family waking up to what was happening. So they would drug me and tell everybody that I was crazy. They literally stood up in the family meetings and told them that I was crazy. And so when um, you say drug you, what what are they giving you and how are they explaining it to you? Well, they they just told me I needed take this and if I didn't take it then they would have to do other things so I took the pill it was a Seroquel 800 it was so much so I'm not familiar with that medicine what is it it's like a it's like one of the strongest medicines it's um for bipolar and it makes you sleep they told me they were giving it to me to sleep because I wasn't sleeping enough I was so I was fighting for my life because they would put me, they, after the raid happened, they put me in a house in hiding that was um, in Wyoming with the same caretaker the family all moved to because they were afraid that people would, um, it, the raid was going to go to South Dakota too. So they hid everybody in houses, all the children especially, <laughs> and weren't family. So they took us to a house in hiding in Wyoming and um, this caretaker threatened. This is the first time I was really physically threatened. He, um, well, I was, I was threatened psychologically with blood atonement, but he physically threatened me and told me that he didn't need to go through Warren Jess anymore. He didn't need to use the phone. He could do that if he wanted to, but he didn't really need to. 
he could just take me out. And he told me if I didn't kill myself, he would tell him it was an accident. But if I did, he would tell, oh, if I, yeah, if I, okay, if I did kill myself, he'd tell everybody it was an accident. But if I didn't, he was going to kill me and tell everybody I did it. So if you did kill yourself, he would tell everybody it was an accident. Right. But if not, they would drown you and tell you that it was suicide. And and tell people, when you first told me this, I had to ask for clarification. So it would be worse in your community to commit suicide than drowning in an accident, right? Because why? Why is suicide so shameful? Well, oh, not really. He just gave me that ultimatum. But I didn't buy into it because I... I, the reason, the main reason why I didn't buy into it is because I didn't want to face God knowing that I had committed suicide. I see. Okay. So even the belief system is kind of the same, but I did like go on a jaunt. I, I did like want to see if he was serious about really going to kill me. And I wanted, I was looking for options to like escape. So I did like he, I asked him if I should go to the reservoir that was close by and just, you know, just drowned. And, you know, if I committed suicide, then I could, you know, that would be, a, you know, why should I not do that? You know, if I was really going to commit suicide and let everybody think it was an act. So I, I asked him if I could to test him to see if he was serious. And he literally left the whole, he took his whole family and left. And that's not, not normal for a caretaker. Because a caretaker usually watches the house, makes sure nobody gets away, you know. For him to take his family and leave is like, yeah, go, do it right now, or else, you know. So I jumped out the window and I went to the reservoir. And I sat there for a long time. And I thought, well, he's just going to say he could see me. So I'm going to get in. So that he has to be close enough to rescue me. He's really going to rescue me. So I went in, clear up to my neck. And I sat there for like an hour it was it was i don't know how long for sure but it was long enough for you know anybody and they were not even close they were not even around they weren't trying to look for me i know that he put on to the family at the house that he was trying to look for me but he wasn't he was the reservoir wasn't that big it was deep but it wasn't that big so i just I just finally climbed out and decided, well, either I can run to another house, which I may not make it because, you know, if he really is watching me from somewhere, then I could get shot. Or else I could just go back to the house and work it out because now everybody in the house knows that I left. And if, if everybody in the house knows that I left, they're, they're all going to be watching. If something happens to me, they'll know. And this caretaker's not going to do anything to me with everybody knowing because it won't go over. You know, everybody else will question him and, you know, he'll get punished. So I went back to the house. And exactly what happened, everybody. Well, first I had to talk to, like, some of Naomi and she asked me why I did it. And, now, you know, Naomi I, was Warren's favorite wife, right? Right. So I. Um, told her that I I just basically couldn't really talk because the caretaker was standing outside listening to everything I said 
so that I wouldn't tell him. So I just, I just cried. I, I wouldn't answer her. And so she said, are you not communicating well? And I said, yes. And she says, okay, I'm going to set up a way that you can leave. And so then it went through the process of like a week. I stayed there for like a week after that. But it was all an uproar because everybody was watching everybody. And it wasn't like before when it was all secretive. And it ultimately came down to, they told me, well, we're going to take you to, um, they said, we, we want you to find something wrong with your father. Because in the scriptures, it says, if you're in the doctrine of covenants, it says, if, you're, if you don't understand scriptures by the time you're eight years old, the sin goes on the head of the parent. So they said, we want you to find something wrong with your father and blame all your sins on him. And then you can come back and join us and teach the children. We'll give you an out, an opportunity. And I took it because I I didn't really blame my father for anything, but I wanted to go in the car. So I just decided I was going to go. I went in the car. It was a nightmare. They put me through tests the whole time. But they ended up stopping with my at my my parents stopped and they they let me get in with my parents and I hadn't seen them for five years I um was now headed to the crib and I I just I I tried my hardest to stay in the crib because my parents didn't bring me to the road so I didn't just leave right then I did plan things so to look around and try to figure out ways to leave but mostly what I was doing is preparing to help the children like I didn't know if I was going to live through it but I thought if I got some of the people that harassed me corrected then the children would have a better chance they wouldn't have as many things to go through they were going to have at least 18 years you know and it wouldn't be really right for me to to drop the ball too soon because but I had to be really careful. I had to like hide it from everybody because I didn't want them to just like immediately judge me for doing that. So I just like hid at my father's house and for like a year, you know, it was like a few years I stayed at my father's house and I was treated good by the whole community. You know, they, none of them knew code in Colorado City. They don't know code. And I, um, I did eventually write letters and get people credit because I knew how to use the letter thing. But they didn't know how to trace it to me because it had been too much time. Now, is that this when you're put in your brother's home when you come back to the crick? Well, I went to my father's first. But my, the reason why they used my brother is because he started picking up on clues. He started realizing that none of Warren Jeff's wives do what I do. None of them come back to the crick. And when they do, they don't get told to go to church. Nobody is like in the position that I was in. It wasn't anybody. So he started picking up on clues. And whenever my sister from South Dakota would come, then he would run outside and talk to the people that dropped her off. And just anything he could do to learn about code. And he got into security and everything he could do to learn about code. He was the he was one of the children that always was a troublemaker. Anyway, so he got into code and so that's why they made me over to my brother's house. 
So let's talk about what leads up to your escape. So they started bringing things to the creek because they knew people had got created. That had been part of my case. And they didn't know if I had done it or not. So they wanted to question me, harass me again. But I wouldn't prepare to go back to South Dakota or Texas. It was too risky, too hard to get away. You know, too far away, not... And, you know, you have to run, and if you're being threatened and followed, how are you supposed to make it? So I didn't want to go back, and it was, it was just too dangerous. I told one of this, it's just too dangerous, and that's how I thought people credit too, was because I told them that it was too dangerous. And anyway, I told him why it was too dangerous. And anyway, so they started bringing code to the creek. And sending me in positions where I could be. But when I lived in my brother's house, it was only for one week. Because during the night, people were coming in and black clothing. The neighbors saw it because they were observing. Because my brother went to all the neighbors and told them all night. But there was a few times I tried to get away. There was one time, it went really bad at my father's house before I moved to my brother's house. because. They were trying to blame my father. So what I did was, it was they started, they would, because in the church there's no guns in the house, they felt free to like come in and rearrange my room. I mean, literally they would take things out of my room and then replace them later. Well, my keys turned up missing. And I knew that was a sign that they had, that they had, um, they had a key to the door. They, so to get in the house, but at first they would get in the house because my mother, one of my mothers would never lock the door. We'd all leave and she wouldn't lock the door. So they were getting in and then eventually they got what they wanted as far as like keys and stuff. One time I found a rope in my hamper with a knot and I knew in code hamper is like hang her. So I was afraid to sleep because I was afraid I wouldn't wake up. And so I told my mother about this, and she put me in one of the rooms with a baby monitor. And she told me, you hear, I mean, she said, we'll make sure that no nothing happens. So I went to sleep that night, and because I had drugs and everything. So I was afraid to sleep. I was fighting sleep. I would fought sleep for years, even with drugs. But I, I with drugs, I, I really couldn't fight all night. So the very first day I found the note. I went to the rope. I went to my mother. She told me to stay in that room, put the baby monitor in there. The next morning after I had woke up, she said, why did you get up in the night and unplug the baby monitor? And I said, I didn't do that. And she says, well, during the middle of the night, it, it started beeping on our side. That means you unplugged it. And the father told me to go and check on you. So I went in to check on you. And as soon as I touched the doorknob, then it got plugged back in and it stopped beating. And I says, Mother, that wasn't me. Somebody was in my room last night. And I knew what it meant. I knew that they were threatening my parents too because they had already told me they wanted to blame everything. So they were like, it's either going to be you or your parents. You don't have a choice. You don't get to just stay here. You have to choose you or your parents. And 
so I left. I went over. I actually went to Willie Jessup's because I, I knew he got up in church. I didn't really know him. I knew about him, but I didn't really know him. But I went to Willie Jessup's thinking that I maybe could find someone that I could get away with, somebody that would be strong enough to maybe defend me. But I went there, and I was sent to the hospital because they were checking on my medicine. And at the hospital, I saw I was all over the news. I asked him not to put me on the news, and I was all over the news. It was called The Barefoot Wife. It's still on the Internet. And I just felt like I was walking into a trap. I felt like I was, if I was going to walk into a trap, why wouldn't I be with people I cared about? You know, like my parents. I didn't want to live with my parents because I didn't want them to get hurt. But I didn't, I, I was like, if I'm going to be among somebody, I might as well be among, you know, I don't want to, if I'm going to die, why would I die with just anybody, you know? So I, I just decided I was going to go back with my parents. And they told me, they promised me I wouldn't live with them. I, I explained why I did what I did. They said I'd live somewhere else, that I would, they would protect me. I knew they weren't going to protect me, but I didn't want to go to South Dakota. They weren't going to let me because I wasn't prepared. And so I just decided to risk it. I had to risk something. So I risked to go with people that, that you know, I understood or something better. And they took me to Lyle Jess House. I went to Lyle Jeff's house, and it was fine Why for, like, a while. His family was not like Warren's family. They didn't have all the all the same dynamics, as far as I could tell. And if they did, they weren't, like, as advanced. And it was the his family in the Crick, which wasn't in South Dakota or Texas, where most people are advanced in those areas. So I stayed there for... About four months, Lyle just got corrected, to send away. They put Don Wayman in there, and then Warren just moved me out, and he moved me to my brother's house. And I had no protection at all because Lyle just actually, you know, he a lot of people don't like him and stuff, but he looked out for me just because I was Warren's wife. He doesn't do that for everybody. Because I was Warren's wife, he had a little more respect, and he kind of wondered what was going on. I had kind of educated him some, and he would study and try to. He he knew a lot about code. I know he did, but he and he does. But he he didn't like want to be on the blacklist as far as like for Warren Jess family. So he kind of treated me different. But when he left, there's this new bishop, John Wayman. The first time he'd been the bishop. And I had to start all over on even educating or doing anything to get him up to speed. And I had no time. All the time was used. And so they sent me to my brother's house. He had already learned code. And they were coming in in the night. I I was trying to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. And, I mean, I I wasn't really trying to sleep. I was fighting sleep. But they were coming in my room like, Periodically, every hour they'd come in and check on me to see if I'd fallen asleep. And I knew it was because if I was awake and they strangled me, I could scream. You know, if they tried to do anything to me while I was awake, I could scream and all the neighbors would hear. So they they didn't do anything to me. They were waiting for me to go to sleep. I didn't sleep for a week. And I didn't have my drugs. I had dropped my drugs because I there was no way under that much pressure I could even do anything with. With, there was just too much pressure. So I dropped my drugs. I 
didn't um, sleep for a week, but I did try to get away. But they were watching me so closely, and they were trapping me in more and more and more. And I went to Flagstaff one day with my brother, and because he was taking his family there, and to do some business. I went to the police force at the place. I went to the desk as we were walking past it. I stopped at the desk, even in front of my brother. And I said, I need help. I need to talk to so they called the police. The police came, talked to my brother first, came to me and said, we made your brother sign a paper that because of your mental state, you have to go back. I was like, I have never signed any papers that are... um." that are like committed me, you know, maybe I've been diagnosed with things because of all this cult stuff and all everything that's happened, you know, people, and I haven't even had a chance, you know, I haven't been committed, like given up my rights to say what happens to me. And they said, well, you need to save up money. You need to at least save up money. You can't just escape. You can't just leave. You have to save up money. I'm like, how can I save up money? I don't even have a job. I have no car. I have no phone. I sew, but I, I can't like really, do any you know i can't i don't transfer the articles i never see the money how am i supposed to save up money and they wouldn't listen to me they decided i had a mental issue they didn't want to listen to anything i said because they didn't have a lot of knowledge if they would have had more knowledge of how things worked they probably would have been more sympathetic and they probably would have done something but just being out of just out of the blue Hearing somebody say, well, she has mental issues and explain maybe even some papers. I don't know what my brother had. Whatever he did, he convinced them that I was mental. So I went back with them to my brother's house. He locked me up in the room. He put screws in the window, put the doorknob, turned it around. So the lock was on the, on, in, in the hall. I couldn't unlock it. Well, the very first day that happened, I was like, he's gone to work. If he was home, he'd go in. If I tried to get out the window, he would go in and put screws all up the window. So I waited till he went to work. Then I went in, found some scissors, unscrewed one side of the window, and started pounding on the other side because I couldn't get it unscrewed. I pounded on it until it broke. And his wife was home. She came in and took everything I was using. She heard it break. I heard her gasp. But she thought I had another screw to do. So she didn't realize I jumped out the window right then and left. I went, took back roads. I went to Lori Chatwin's. Well, I didn't, I wasn't going there, but I went through her yard and she saw me and she was dressed different than FLDS and offered to help. So I talked to her. She drove me to the house I was going to. She's the one that knew the organizations on the outside. She called them. I was out of the town before the end of the day. For someone who has been to the town to understand what this is like, this is no small feat what you've done. So where where does uh, where does she take you? Well, my mom, adopted mom. So explain I, explain who that is. She's been a guest on our show before, but I don't think a lot of people know just how hard this woman works in these communities. Right, Kristen Decker. She was the a part of the Hope Organization at that time. Now she runs her own organization called Sound Choices Coalition. She um, she literally rescued me. She 
she took me that day. The family that I ran to drove me down to her. She took me to her very own house in New Harmony. And she um could see that I wasn't really crazy. Somehow she she understood the dynamics of the culture because she um is a relative to many people down there and she wasn't really raised in the FLDS but she was raised in the uh AUB group. But she understood a lot of the tricks and things that most of the outsiders like the police and Flagstaff didn't know because they didn't have any background. But she understood when they came to her and they said she has a diagnosis, she's crazy, we need to take her back. She said, you need to show me the papers that say she has been committed. Because if she hasn't given up her rights, she's 26 years old, then you're out of your league. You know, you're not in the right place. You're breaking the law. And they didn't have the papers. Literally, the Department of Justice flew in. They talked to me. They um, took me off the missing list. My family had put me on the missing list. My brother and he had. And so I couldn't really, you know, do as many things being on the missing list. So the Department of Justice took me off that. I literally went to Salt Lake because of them trying to track me down. They sent a police officer to the Hope Organization and got information um, what, what my mom's number was, my, my mom now, Kristen Decker, what her number was and tried to, like, talk to me. She's like, she called the police force, you know, and the, the chief and told them what was going on. And the chief said, well, he's not doing his duty. He's, he's out of his jurisdiction. And so she had permission to not listen to the police, that one policeman that was trying to track her down. She did a lot of work to literally rescue me. And it hasn't been easy. And it's still like we, we talk every day. <laughs> and we're learning things a lot together. But we have a lot of the same goals. And a lot of things we we just follow our heart both of us follow our heart no matter what so we even if we agree to disagree we understand each other's stance so tell me this this is something that you need to clarify for listeners you had a name before and you've taken on a new name can you explain that yeah my name was Lynette Warner and i i went to salt lake after the police had tried to find me and stuff i was pretty by the time I got out, I was pretty, like, sick. I was really, really sick. So I went to Salt Lake because I was afraid of being found. And anyway, there was two organizations in Salt Lake. That was I was talking to three organizations. There was two organizations in Salt Lake that actually told me they were going to get a... Uh, get a... Some, some paperwork for me to sign and then they would get my ID through paperwork. They would go to the offices and request my paperwork through me signing the papers. Well, then they showed up and handed me my ID. And I said, how did you get this? And they said, oh, well, we just went to your parents. So they went behind my back and went to the parents. So that was traumatizing and I ended up in the hospital. And then I requested to go to a specific domestic violence shelter that I knew had high security. 
they didn't want me because of the risk of being my abusers knowing where I am. It's a risk for everybody in the building. Well, while I was at the hospital, my biological mother called me and she left a message. She didn't have my code name to actually talk to me, but she left a message and I thought. And I was like in shock because I had been gone for a month. My mother was calling me. And so somebody from the inside of these organizations, somebody was communicating with my mom and telling her where I was. So I went to the domestic violence shelter. We got permission to go to that very domestic violence shelter for one week because the organizations had set up a scheduled flight for me to fly to Minnesota to stay with some lady. Well, when I got to the shelter, I went to my case manager and I said, this is what's going on. This is why I had my relapse. This is, you know, my everything. I explained it to my case manager and she said, this doesn't sound good. She, she told me that I needed to call the lady in Minnesota and see if that was even legitimate. So I called the lady in Minnesota and she said, call me back in five minutes. And then she wouldn't answer the phone after five minutes. Right in front of my case manager, she witnessed this setup that I was being funneled back to the community, to the FLDS. And I felt like I was going to fly out and not be picked up at the airport. I don't know that that would have happened, but I, it just everything was lining up in that direction. So my case manager said, you need to drop all the organizations that are helping you. And you need to pick up these other ones. And she found Holding Out Help, Shield and Refuge, and Safety Net. Three totally different ones. Well, um, I followed her advice because I had no choice, really. I didn't know how to sort everything out. It was too fast for me to sort. I only had a week to be there. I had to be gone. We found another domestic violence shelter to stay at. And before we left, my case manager called me and said, there's some people from these other organizations, the first organizations that want to talk before we go. If you want, I can help you through this. So I went down to the room and found out that they were telling me, we know you're mad at us for going behind your back because of your parents, you know, because we went to your parents without permission. But we just want you to know that they're here in town. They knew I didn't fly out to Minnesota. It was the day after. And I... We just told them that we were going to a homeless shelter, and we didn't go to a homeless shelter. We walked out of there and traveled to another domestic violence shelter. And my case manager brought me there personally, and I had these other organizations I was working with. And the shelter, the first shelter, the one that let me in for a week that had high security, told me that my parents showed up there, demanded me, knew that I hadn't flown out to Minnesota. They said I, we, they thought that they were holding me. They wanted me to know. They wanted me to know that they were searching the roads everywhere because we told them we were going to a homeless shelter and homeless shelters would get put out during the day. So they were searching all the roads. So I talked to these other organizations that were helping me. And decided out of all the decisions, everyone kind of came up with a solution how I could, where I could go, families that would take me in another state, other solutions. And I chose to go to Tennessee. But I knew I was really sick. And one of the reasons why I chose Tennessee is because there was, there was a few other options, other families and things. But I chose Tennessee because they had a domestic violence shelter there that I called beforehand and they, told me they would accept me in if it didn't go well. 
So I went to Tennessee and I was planning on changing my name because I never wanted to, well, for one thing, I was scared. Another thing, I never wanted to wake up thinking that, you know, I didn't want to wake up out of a relapse if I had PTSD and go into any psychological anything because I'm at risk of that being drugged, you know, all that stuff. I didn't want to wake up in the FLDS. So it wasn't really a choice. I really needed to get my name changed. And um, I didn't know how it all worked. I just told everybody that's what I was going to do. And I went there and I was really sick. When I finally landed in Tennessee, I was so exhausted, so tired. And I had to sort if people out here taught like I learned when I was a child or if they taught like I learned code. And I would go through phases where I was more clear than other phases. I ended up at a domestic, at that domestic violence shelter because I wasn't watched as much. And it was easier for me to sort things because it's a big shelter and people in that shelter don't really um, focus on one individual like a house, you know, like a family focuses on you and tries to do everything they can for you. It was actually harming me because I had been harassed so bad. I didn't want that focus. I wanted to just figure it out on my own because I couldn't handle being watched all the time. So I ended up in the shelter and stayed there for six months, um, learned a lot. But I didn't get my name completely changed until a year. I did get changed once, just temporary. And then I found a name I liked and changed it more. And then I changed my social. I asked, I, I, I did get in contact with Kristen Decker again in Tennessee because of holding out help. They said, she's been crying. She's been begging us to help her find you. She did so much for you. And she wasn't really part of the scam. And I trusted holding out help. By this time in Tennessee, I didn't have any repercussions for trusting these three organizations. So I trusted holding out help, and I decided to call her back. So I did call her back, and it was so great. She answered every day. She... She's been my backbone, my support through this, through all the relapses I had in Tennessee. I had like one every six months. After I got clarity, about six months after, I got constant clarity. Then every six months, I'd have a relapse. But now, I after the first six months I missed, I moved back to Utah to help people. I had my name changed. I had all that. Roger Hull actually helped me get all that stuff figured out. And... And my social was changed. Everything was ready so I could come back to Utah and help people. I knew that it was legally they would have no rights over me. I wouldn't, even if anything happened to me, which, you know, of course it was a risk. But if if anything, if I was threatened or anything, if anything happened to me, it would be really obvious. And um, it wouldn't be legal. There would be no way that they could even kidnap me or anything you know there would be no way that they could do that so I took the risk I came back to Utah and it's been great because I knew they didn't I knew they worked in a way that and also another reason thing that I kind of skipped over was um 
I thought when I was leaving the community, they said it's either you or your father has to take this load. I thought I could just leave. I told them, I said, I'm going to escape and I'm going to go and live in witness protection program for the rest of my life. And you can blame it on me because I don't want my father to be hurt. I love my father still. And I said, I'm just going to go take the blame, live in witness protection program. And um, when I die naturally of a natural death, then you can justly, you know, say that you got your, you know, your vengeance or whatever you think you need. I said, I'm not going to allow it because I know that what you're saying isn't true. And, you know, everything you're bringing me through, you're finding out it's not true. You're just looking for something else. So I'm not going to allow it. And I'm just going to go and hide. So they went, they didn't think I would escape, but I did escape. And so like one week after I escaped, they corrected my father. They sent my father away, told me he couldn't come back for good and told him that he would lose his family and everything. And he, he, he had a really tough time at first, but he's, you know, that's one reason why I learned about that. I felt like I could come back to Utah because I didn't think they were after me anymore. My knowledge was out. I wasn't like the same person anymore because everything they were trying to hide, everything they were trying to do was like over. You know, my father was corrected. He took the blame, even though I didn't want him to. They just decided to correct him. Um, they All the knowledge that I was hiding was out, whether they liked it or not. There wasn't anything that they could do. I needed to like, I had, the reason why I didn't want to be on media at first was because I felt like I needed a support system. I had been told so much in the church that I was crazy that I wanted to prove I wasn't. I wanted to be among people that would give me that opportunity. So I went through a whole situation, a whole scenario for like two years I was in Tennessee. I I worked really, really hard to prove that I I could think logically. I could handle life. I could do whatever I needed to do. And of course I had my relapses. And then I went, when I went to Utah, the first one I missed after six months, I didn't have one for a year and a half. It was actually, it was actually a year and three months that I had a relapse here in Utah. And now it has been a year and a half. So it's been over what it was last time. And I am almost off my medicine, like completely. I have like 50 milligrams or something. And next month is, I'm done with medicine. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and I don't think I can even articulate how much hell that you've been through, what you've overcome, the fear and the odds that you fought against. I mean, we talk about all these women that stay married to Warren just because of fear, and your story is so unique. I think it deserves a way bigger platform. I hope that you write a book. I hope that people listen to this and maybe contact you with opportunities because this is a story that needs to get out. It's one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. And I think you're one of the bravest people I've ever met. Oh, I, I am writing a book. I have a book writer. I work with her. And we we have a ways to go still. But I am writing a book. And um, I, I didn't cover this, but I um, 
went through a process through all of last year. So it's almost been a year. This February, it will be a year of trying to get a house in Colorado City. And it's actually Warren Jeff's house. I um, did qualify. I have the keys, just the occupancy agreement. I'm still working on all the details of it because I just got it on Thanksgiving. But it took me from February to Thanksgiving to get the keys. And so I just plan on going the rest of the way, like making a transitional home for people that are, I know that some people won't be able to live there. You know, there's high risk people and there's people that can just walk away and they don't have knowledge. They, they don't care if they leave. So there's all different stages of people that can leave. And I want to give them an opportunity when they have nothing because they do take everything away from them. They have no credit. They have nothing. I want to just give them an opportunity to have like maybe some funding, like government funding somehow. So there are some things we're looking at, but not all figured out yet, but we are trying to have government funding for people that do leave and have nothing so that from the very beginning, they can stay somewhere. And it's not only for FLES, there's other, we want to have it like cult recovery from other, you know, my mom, my adopted mom, she legally adopted me, Kristen Decker. She, um, she's from a different group. You know, I, I want to welcome other people from other groups that want to have a new start in life, place to stay. There are process you can go through in, in FLDS religion where they can get a home like I did. But through this process, um, they still need a place to stay when they first leave. It's not like they're going to have like everything right at the start. So we just want to make it a transitional place. There are a lot of dynamics to this, a lot of questions that have been recently, you know, raised. I, I don't know how many people, you know, are involved in it, but. We are going through like an investigation type thing. I've talked to the state. I have a lot of insight about how the mind in the FLDS people work. I, I went through like code. I, I don't talk in code, but I do like maneuver things, to try to get into their minds and try to figure out how to help them best through love, through research. I've found people that have degrees, talked to experts. As far as I understand, all um, people, love is better than hate when you're trying to work with somebody. So I do right, do a lot of, um, I've joined up with my own nonprofit, which is called Voices for Dignity. And we try to give everyone a voice. So we're neutral. We, we want to have a place. We want to start as soon as we can laying a groundwork so people can feel loved. We don't want to, you know, sympathize or, you know, with the wrongs, but we just learn what we need to learn to help as best as we can to lay the groundwork so they want to even come out of the, you know, of a bad situation, especially like the FLDS, and try to to be stable. If they, I know from my own experience, when I lived in Sandy, Utah, I saw a lot of people on the outside that were nice to me, that were kind, and and that played a big factor in me trying and trying and trying to escape. I know that I wasn't satisfied when I went with somebody that was 
harsh or mean. I wasn't satisfied with it. I wanted to find somebody that would be good, not just say they're going to be good and not do it. I wanted somebody that would actually be good. And I, I know that I just, I, I get really passionate about this because I went through so much, but I want this gift, the same gift for the people that are now going, that are still in the religion. I want them to know that the people on the outside are loving. I know a lot of people that have left the religion take on the attitude that they need to push them to the breaking point. But in research, it says the best chance for them is love. So all I try to do is give them the best chance. I feel like the church will bring them to the breaking point anyway because it's a bad church. In any case, I feel like research is is proven. And yes, many people have come out because they were pushed to the breaking point, either by the outside or not, or by the church. But really love is what I believe is more proven to work. And I know through my own experience, it did work. So I, I just want the children to not have as much trauma. If I'm going to be helping children, I would really appreciate the less trauma, the better. You know, I, I don't want them to have to recover from so, so much. I am trying to give them hope that they can recover by doing everything I can myself. But I don't expect all of them to be able to get out. I mean, I know of some, I know I've heard of some that are trapped in there. In other places, even, you know, they get trapped like I was, locked up. And so I don't know if all of them will escape, but I want to give them hope. I want to live my life so that if they even hear about me, they can think about me, you know, somebody that succeeds and show them love all the time. Because even if they don't return that love, in in research, it shows it is sinking in and it did sink in in my life. What people did in Sandy really made me realize that it didn't matter what the leader said. There was love somewhere. There was love on the outside. This new updated stuff. Yeah, no, and that's beautiful. That's a perfect way to end it. But is there a way that people out there can support this project? Should we donate to Voices for Dignity? What? How can we support this? Yes, donate. Voices for Dignity is great. Um, there's other ways to support, like. Um, almost anything that anybody does, like there, there are so many ways, right? If you take a different stand, even we still want to know because we want to, we want to know, like, how, where to refer people who take a different stand, you know? So there isn't any person that I can think of that doesn't, you know, if they're doing good in any way, then it's, 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 you know, it could help, you know, like there's one dynamic that is really intense because in that culture where the center is, you know, like Hilldale and Colorado City, where most of the people from the FLDS are, they, it's like the center of the FLDS, you know, like it's not really the center of FLDS anymore, but where all of the action is from people escaping and transitioning. So where that is, there's either XFLDS, FLDS, mostly those two. 
there's hardly any people that haven't been in FLDS or at separate. But my goal, one of my goals is to find good people that haven't any knowledge because they have a unique stand to be able to get in and communicate with both sides. Because the FLDS believe the ex-FLDS are out to get them and that they're enemies to them and they're counsel to not talk to them. While the ex-FLDS, many of them run on anger because of this. They're their families, they're hurt. They feel like that they they need to, they just run on anger. They they just, they don't, they think they just need to leave and then we'll help them. They just need to leave and then we'll help them. But through my studies and because I knew that outsiders are not as in the same position, people that haven't been born in the church, they're not in the same position. And I knew that by just thinking, you know, about what I was taught as a child through my life. So I went through the process to get a house to be able to get the knowledge I needed in the back of the experience and the facts so that I could help people like learn this new process about. So during this, I brought in outsiders that have degrees, have understanding, not enough, but a few. And we put a note on the gate that said, if you want to stay, because we don't want this huge house, you know, except for, for a good purpose. So as best purpose we can do. Can you, so we, can you say whose house it is or do you not want to say right now? It's the Warren Jeff's house, but it's now mine. I just, I gotta, this kills me. This is the best. The thought of you being his unruly wife and now you are the owner of his home. I think that's so awesome to me. <laughs> like, it's just so the, powerful, the, Brielle. Family, I was crazy. You, you know? are a miracle. It just, like, it blows my mind just hearing you. You're so articulate and lovely and beautiful and wonderful. And major props to Kristen Decker, who, like, is so selfless behind the scenes. People just don't realize. Like, I'm tearing up thinking about it. But tell us, you're engaged, right? Right. You guys, she's engaged. She's She's got a home. She's living in Warren Jeffs' home. How big is that place? It's um, 41 rooms in the actual home there's three homes on the same lot 41 rooms and it has two commercial kitchens one regular kitchen it's huge yeah and we're coming down in april and um we're renting out an entire floor for our volunteers who are doing a service project to sleep over there so we're super excited about that but real you're just amazing You're just amazing. And I really appreciate you coming on and telling this story. I think you're going to inspire far more than just people that have been involved in the FLDS. I think it's your story is courageous and brave. And just the growth that I've seen you have since I've known you is like, it's phenomenal. It's mind blowing. So I just think you're a really special, unique person. And thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I I know that. Um, when I write my book, there's, there's even going to be a lot more. So <laughs> I just want, you know, to like, yeah, I, I'm constantly like, when so. it comes out, let's do another interview to promote the book and we'll get people, all the listeners out here will buy it to support you. So, yeah. So yeah, we, we definitely want as, as many, you know, it's, I, I believe that by 
raising awareness in any way, even though the core, like Colorado City and Hilldale, is like the main place, raising awareness all over can make a big difference. Like there are so many people in houses in hiding. And even though I escaped by knowledge, by getting people in organizations from the core that had knowledge that would actually do what they needed, you know, what needed to be done, there's other places all over the world. So we need to educate as much as we can. I still believe that the core is the best place because there's more resources for everyone. But I also believe that that we need to educate and raise awareness. So that's why I promote the house, the book, because there's it's a it's a it's not easy. It's just what we do because it feels like closure, you know. <laughs> it just feels like Helping people is, you know, making it easier for the, you know, every in every way. It, it feels like the right thing to do for me. That I've always been social. I've always tried. So that's what I still try to do. And there are a lot of things that, you know, when you actually get into the dynamics of doing this, whatever you can do to help does help. It's, it's not overlooked. So we're appreciative. If you want to donate talents or, you know, money or, expertise you know I, I eventually want to go to college I want to go become a psychologist I, I I do have the medical billing and coding I'm trying to finish up first I have the course and I missed the test by 14 so I'm trying to finish that up but eventually I will be in college <laughs> and I have to start from the beginning of college and go through all the years to get a psychology degree so I can be a psychologist to help decode the children so that they can have a chance if they are only know if the only language they know is code they'll have somewhere to live somewhere to go to recover and actually learn how to communicate well we're all collectively wishing you luck and again it's been such a pleasure to talk to you so thanks thank you